Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. And Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? But when you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go before me, go down before me to Gilgal, and shall, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? is Saul also among the prophets. Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? So he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were found nowhere to be found, he went to Samuel, and Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Paul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, 
he did not tell him what Samuel had said. And Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all kingdoms, and from you who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations, and you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul the son of Kish was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, You see him which the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house, and Saul also went to home to Gibeah. And valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Thank you, George. Quite of an account here in the, in the ongoing process of Israel establishing a king. And uh, we remind ourselves once again that though the, the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help now as we look at this word together. Bow with me, please. Father, we come once again to you, and Lord, we acknowledge as you word tells us that all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for approving, Lord, for training in righteousness that we may be well equipped for, for every good work. And so we, we trust that even in these uh, Old Testament passages, Lord, that there is truth and we see, um, Lord, not only your ways, but we see the, the consequences when man hardens themselves against you. But in all of that, we, we witness your faithfulness to continue with your purposes and plans. And Father, we pray as we consider this now, may we just uh, rejoice in, Lord, your, your steadfast uh, covenant faithfulness over the ages. And may we have a sense of, of peace and joy, knowing that uh, while we also await the final return of Christ, that it will surely come in, in your perfect time, and that we would be uh, busy about uh, kingdom work even as we are here. And we pray you guide us now. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, I imagine we've all probably convinced ourselves at one time or another that if we could just possess one particular item that we would never need anything else... Um, as a child, I remember it was always you know, that one 
Lego set, that if I could just get that one Lego set, I wouldn't need any other Lego. I would be happy and I probably wouldn't need any more birthday presents or anything like that. And of course, uh, as we get older, we, we change maybe the items that we, we set our, our, our eyes on. Maybe it's a tool, maybe it's a vehicle, maybe it's a particular house or a position. Uh, maybe it's a particular uh, spouse, a person that you think, if I could just marry that person, then all of, my, all of my troubles would go away and life would be perfect. And oftentimes what we find is sometimes we, we do, in fact, get those items that we set our heart upon and we, we have all of this hope that it will cure us of our discontentment, but then no sooner do we get that item than do we realize it actually is not the cure that we had hoped and then we quickly begin looking on to the next thing. And in many ways, this is what has happened with the people of Israel. The 12 tribes had convinced themselves that what they really needed was a king like the nations. That if they could just have a king, that they would be secure, they would enjoy peace and prosperity. And no sooner do we find that they are given their request that there are already rumbles of discontentment and problems. And yet through all of these things, we see God continuing to bring about his purpose through his people and accomplishing his, his plan. And so this is an incredible account given to us here. And so I want to just look at two parts. Uh, we're going to first just look at Saul's private confirmation by Samuel something that happened between him and Samuel, the first part of chapter 10. And then secondly, we're going to see a public coronation uh, where Saul is publicly appointed as the, the king of Israel. And both of these aspects are, are important and uh, they really do help us to understand how God is setting the stage for all of the future kings of Israel. And we will see how this even helps us understand uh, in many ways, the beginnings of the ministry of Christ himself as the king of kings. And so if we remember, um, I know we kind of picked up right in the middle of uh, uh, a scene here. We, we had previously um, the events where Saul is very baffled by Samuel's words that he talks to Saul. He was just looking for his father's donkeys. He wasn't out to find a great adventure. He wasn't out to change the world. It was just a very ordinary, even frustrating experience that had caused Saul to wander off looking for these animals that had left. And he finds that in all of these ordinary circumstances, the providence of God brings him to Samuel. Samuel tells him, you are the one that God's chosen to be king over the tribes. And he welcomes him into his, his feast after the sacrifice. He, he gives him the seat of honor. He gives him the choice meat of the meal. Saul is invited to come to presumably Samuel's house for the night. And he rests with his servant. And then... Last week we left off where Samuel told Saul, tell your servant to go on before us and I, I want to talk to you privately for a few moments that I may make known to you the word of God, Samuel says. So this section in the beginning of 10, uh, it, it really then is this private conversation between Samuel and Saul. And there are no witnesses so far as we know uh, of exactly what has happened. So Samuel, after the servant, has 
listened to his master, listened to Saul. He's gone up ahead. He's carried on his way, probably back home. And Samuel takes out, we're told, a small flask of oil and pours it on the head of Saul. And Samuel kisses him and says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And, you sh- and shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And so we have Samuel, first of all, anoint his head with oil. And uh, I know um, several well, months ago now we were in James, and uh, in James there was the instruction to uh, those who are sick to anoint their head with oil. And we, we kind of went on a bit of a, a search as to how the, the oil was used in, in Israel's uh, culture and life, and it was used in, in many ways, not only medicinally, but at times it was used to anoint. There was, there was the special anointing oil of the priests by which the high priest was anointed. There was oil that was used to anoint the kings of Israel, and this was very much a part of their culture. And so here we have Samuel taking what seems to be ordinary oil. We're not told that this is taken from uh, you know, the unique oil that was set aside for the, the priests or anything like that. But it is simply a symbolic picture that Saul has been chosen by God. And so the oil is a representation of God's blessing, God's hand upon this man. And it is often closely associated with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit upon someone's life for a specific task. Now, we don't want to make too much of this uh, particular point, but several uh, different men that I was reading mentioned the fact that it is interesting to note that here we have a simple flask of oil, a small, fragile container, and whereas David, in his anointing, it is the horn of oil. And is that significant? It would seem, certainly for the Jewish mind, they would have picked up on that. Uh, is this something of a picture of the, the, the shortness, the, the fragile nature of Saul's ministry to come, the limited sense in which the Spirit of God works upon him, whereas David, given the horn of oil in his anointing, this picture of strength, we find even in in the New Testament, the horn is a picture of, of enduring strength and power. But Samuel, nonetheless, is affirming what God has said. And And it seems strange for us that Samuel would kiss Saul. Uh, Obviously, this is not in any romantic sense, but this was a custom, again, even in the Middle East today. Uh, A kiss on the cheek is a a common greeting and a way to, to show respect. And in many ways, Samuel, in this moment, is not only saying, the Lord has anointed you, Saul, but I, as the prophet of God, I'm going to submit myself to your rule, to the authority that God has entrusted you. I am not going to fight against the plan of God. And we mustn't forget that for Samuel, uh, he had appointed his own sons as judges. And, and the establishment of the king um, was something of the end of the line of the, his family line having influence in Israel. This would have been something of a loss for Samuel, which no doubt he felt. But we don't find Samuel ever complaining about the fact that his family would diminish in influence, but he was more concerned about the people's rejection of God. So this kiss, it reminds us even of uh, Psalm 2, which tells us to kiss the sun, uh, right? And, and that language is strange to us, but we find that this is a common way to show 
affirmation to, to show support, submission, uh, even a form of, of reverence. And Samuel is indicating to Saul that I too am putting my hand a blessing upon this because it is by God's design. And Saul uh, then is admonished by Samuel. So in this, in this private confirmation, there are these, these outward signs, the oil, the, the kiss of affirmation, of, of uh, submission even. And then, and then Samuel gives him this, this uh, admonition, this reminder that it is the Lord's people whom he is appointed over. And it's almost as though Samuel at this point can't quite bring himself to say king. He, he says prince over your people. And, and maybe for Samuel, he's still struggling with this idea of Israel having a, a king. And, uh, and, and he uses this word prince which later we will see once he is publicly affirmed uh, is king indeed. But we have in this word to, to Saul, it's repeated over and over that these people are the people of God. They belong to him. They are his heritage, he says. They are his people, Israel. And so it's not as though Saul is appointed as the supreme sovereign over the people of God. But actually, the picture is more of a steward, one who is entrusted with a possession that belongs to another, um, one who is to serve not so much as a dictator who is demanding all of his whims and wishes upon these people. But the picture for Saul is that of a shepherd. You are being entrusted with my people, Saul. And, and, and God will not let Saul forget that this is his possession, his heritage. Yes, there is a, the sense of him giving authority and the ability to, to make decisions and rule, but Saul is not to forget that this is a stewardship from God and he is accountable to God in that sense. And actually, we find even, even today as we think about rulers and leaders, um, there is still a sense even for uh, those who do not fear the Lord, that they are accountable to the Lord. We find that even in, in Romans 13, that they are seen as deacons, as servants of God. They are there to carry out God's justice, to punish the evildoer, to reward the good, to defend the people. And so this whole idea of kind of the, the king who has absolute power and who waves his hand and whatever he wishes comes to pass and, and, and he can, you know, carry out and, and change laws according to desire. This was never part of Israel's history. And though they did at times deviate into that form of monarchy, very clearly this is a position of stewardship and the king is something of a shepherd over the people of God, the people whom God has delivered by his own hand. And then as we consider that, we can think even in our own lives, it's important for us to continually remind ourselves on a practical level that all that we have uh, you know, we talk about our homes, we talk about our vehicles, we talk about our children and my savings and, 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 and all these things that, that, yes, they are yours in a sense. They have been entrusted to you. But just as Saul is reminded that, remember, these first and foremost belong to the Lord. We have to remind ourselves of that, too, don't we? That, that when it comes to our earthly possessions, 
These are really the Lord's. We are given them for a time to, to steward them, to leverage them for the flourishing of his people, for the bringing up of our children, for the advancing of his kingdom, for our own provision, our clothing and our food. But at the end of the day, it is all his. And that is important for us to continually preach to ourselves and actually can be very helpful, whether it's uh, in a position at work or, you know, given a stewardship over uh, a group of, of, of men or, or ladies or combination that this isn't a stewardship from God. Um, even our vehicles, you know, I often find great comfort in the fact that when my, my vehicle breaks down, that I simply remind the Lord that it's actually his vehicle that's broken down <laughs> and that he's going to have to help me figure out, you know, how to get this back on the road or do I replace it or what do I do at this point? Lord, this is yours and I'm trying to take care of it as best I can. Uh, and so, you know, with our children and, and all things, we, we have to, to continually uh, hold them in a, in a, with an open hand before God. And, and Saul was reminded, as much as you will be, yes, crown king, Saul, these are my people, my possession. I have brought them out and you are going to be accountable to me every step along the way. And then Samuel gives him these uh, interesting signs of affirmation. I'm sure for Saul, he's wondering if he's going to at any point wake up and find himself back at home and that it was just all a really weird dream. The, the donkey's missing and coming across the prophet and being told he's going to be king. Maybe he's still wondering if this is all just uh, kind of like a bad joke that somebody is playing on him, you know, that someone uh, you know, paid this, this old uh, prophet to, to play this trick on him. And so, so God gives him three signs of confirmation that are a way to affirm to Saul, this is the hand of God. This is going to happen. This is not just a strange coincidence or, or some kind of practical joke. And we're told the, the three signs that are given to confirm the word. First of all, he will be told that the donkeys were found and that his father is worrying about him and that, uh, that he's no longer concerned about the donkeys. And then secondly, we're told three men will be going up to worship and they will be carrying items that would seem to, to have a, a sacrifice and they will give to Saul two loaves of bread. And, uh, and, and that was the second sign. And the third sign, even, even more incredible, we're told that Saul, where there is a, a garrison of Philistines in, um, in verse 5, there, as soon as he comes into the city, he'll meet a group, of, a group of prophets coming down from the high place. So these prophets that have been worshiping God, have been offering up sacrifices, they're coming back down, they're singing, they're praising God. And uh, you know, we can just imagine even some of the, the, the various psalms that were used as the people went up to worship and as they returned back, they would sing these songs and, and praises to God. Um, interesting, even in a time like this, when some of these psalms were very possibly being written and, and penned and these prophets were, were part of, of writing worship and praising God and we're told that Saul would be caught up in this worship of these prophets, the Spirit of God would rush upon him and he would prophesy and be turned into another man. And so these are the signs that Samuel tells him will take place to affirm God's word. And then we're also given one further instruction, which was to be later, and this becomes important as the narrative unfolds, He's told to go to Gilgal and there wait for Samuel um, to come and offer up the sacrifice. And it's very important that, that Saul uh, wait. He does not go into action prior to Samuel coming. 
And that was very clearly told him. Again, all of this to remind Saul, he is a man under authority. He is under the authority of God. And by, by the appointment of the prophet, uh, God's word is being communicated to Saul. He is not to see himself as, as some kind of uh, you know, ruler with unlimited power and, and without accountability. He is a man under authority. And these are all things that Samuel tells him in private. While we're not given an account of the first two signs being fulfilled, other than to say that they were, um, we find in verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. And so we're, we're told that they come to pass, and we have this peculiar statement that God gives him another heart, which we'll talk about in a minute. And... Then we're, we're kind of zoomed in on the third sign and its fulfillment. And just as Samuel had said, when these group of prophets were coming down, he met them and were told the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he prophesied among them. And you can just imagine the picture. Saul is at this point quite close to his homeland. A lot of these people know him. He's, he's one of the, the, the sons of Kish. He works with the animals. He helps plow the field. Uh, seems like a nice guy. Pretty ordinary guy. Hasn't previously shown interest in the prophets. He didn't even recognize Samuel when he met him. He didn't realize he was in the, a place where Samuel was. Uh, so he didn't seem to have a lot of spiritual discernment prior. And now all of a sudden... People look, and there is Saul standing in the midst of the prophets. He has taken up the tambourine, perhaps, or he's taken up a, an instrument, and he's praising God, and he's singing the, the wonders of God, and he's worshiping. And everyone is looking at this like, what is going on? Saul, is he also among the prophets? And they're, they're baffled at the sudden change in the man of Saul. And these signs were, in fact, fulfilled. Now, many wrestle with the question, was Saul actually converted at this point? Was his heart truly transformed by the power of the Spirit? Was he brought from, from death to life? Remember, even in the Old Testament, the only way of true salvation was by faith through grace. And it is the Spirit's work within them, regenerating their heart and giving them life to, to trust in the promises of God and to walk in obedience to his word. This is how it has always happened from, from even the Garden of Eden. And yet we also see at times the Spirit of God is able to work upon someone in a very limited time for a very specific purpose, but that does not necessarily mean they are truly converted. And we could point to even someone like Balaam, who was a false prophet, uh, someone who was basically a, a prophet for hire and was hired to curse the people of Israel. And yet, as the Spirit of God worked upon Balaam, instead of cursing God's people, he blesses them. Does that mean Balaam was converted? Well, we know he's not, because in the New Testament, Balaam is one of the, 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 the prime uh, pictures of the false prophet. And later would go on to instruct um, Balaam how to, uh, or Balak how to deceive the people and, and bring them into idolatry. So all that to say, I don't think we have to necessarily understand all of this to mean that Saul is converted at this point or is necessarily indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit, but that God is equipping this man to function as Israel's first king. 
Uh, and this is how Matthew, Matthew Henry put it, which I thought was very helpful. If you're ever looking for just a great resource as you're studying the Bible, you know, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible is, is a, a true gem. So that's one that would be a good one to, to have. So he said, the Spirit of God came upon him strongly and suddenly, so the word signifies, but not so as to rest and abide on him. It came on so as to go off quickly. However, for the present, it had a strange effect upon him, for he immediately joined with the prophets in their devotion, and that was as much decorum and as great a transport of affection as any of them. He prophesied among them. And also others agree that there was this, so God says he gave Saul another heart, uh, not necessarily having to mean a new heart as in regeneration, but taking Saul from a country farm boy who really probably didn't know anything about governing a nation or have the heart to go into battle and to lead people into this sort of uh, um, leadership role. God equipped him by the Spirit to walk in this role, but this could still be seen as something other than true conversion. So it's one of those things you'll have to wrestle with. As we look at the life of Saul, I really don't see the enduring fruit of a true believer. Um, he, he, he does not finish well and in various times disobeys God completely. So we will continue to explore that uh, in, in the days to come. But obviously at this particular point, the Spirit of God has so worked upon Saul that the people are baffled and they can't explain what they are seeing. And one person says in the group, um, who is their father? And, and that's something like, whoa, how is that an answer to the question? And it seems to be a, almost a reference to the fact that, well, if God be their father, God, uh, the, the God of the prophets, can he not bring this about? Even as Isaiah 54, 13 tells us, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you. So this idea that God is the father, then of course these things are possible for even someone like Saul to prophesy. And we're told this actually became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? Um, you know, maybe in, in Israel, somebody notices the, the guy who never made it to public worship. He, he never showed up to any of the, the religious ceremonies. And he comes one day to, to service and everyone is somewhat amazed by this. And so they would say this proverb, well, is Saul also among the prophets? As a way to, to kind of say, wow, is, 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 this is incredible. This is unexpected. Or, or maybe someone who you know, has never sang before and they can't carry a, a tune in a bucket. And then they're seen doing a, a solo for the community choir. And the, the expression would be said, well, is Saul also among the prophets? This became a, a phrase that the Israelites would use when they were shocked or surprised by something. So we have then the conclusion of this private uh, confirmation from Samuel. And... We're told that he talks, Saul returns home. His uncle talks to him. He's trying to understand what's happened. Where have you been? This has been days. You've been gone. The donkeys came back. You were missing. Um, probably the servant told him, well, yeah, we ran into Samuel. And the uncle's wondering, okay, well, wh what did Samuel say to you? That sounds pretty significant. 
But Saul just basically avoids the whole matter of the kingdom, does not tell his uncle anything at this point. Um, Probably wise, just waiting for the Lord to bring this about. Not one of those things you want to go declaring from the rooftops at that point, probably. And then we move into the public the public coronation um, of Saul. And so Samuel then calls all the people together. And this seems to be happening very closely uh, at this time. And all of the, not, this is not every single person in Israel, but the, probably the leaders of the various tribes of Israel. And Samuel again, to the people of Israel, rebukes them for their decision to pursue a king. Um, now, I don't know if any of you watched the, the crowning of um, you know, King Charles or uh, are up to date on uh, the happenings of, of uh, you know, modern day kings and queens. But you could just imagine the, the picture here that everyone is gathered together for this crowning of the new king. Everyone's anticipating it. And then the first thing that is said is the, the priest or the bishop gets up and basically rebukes everyone for having rejected the very God who delivered them and exposes their decision to do this as, as wrong. Um, and not only that, but we're told that Saul is actually hiding. He, he really doesn't want any part of this at this point. And when it comes time to crown the king, the king is actually missing. But nonetheless... Samuel, trusting the word of God, has brought them together. He reminds them that they were delivered by God. They belong to God. But today there is a rejection, he says, of God who saves you from your enemies. And so he says, so be it. You want a king. We're going to proceed with this. And they begin uh, by way of lot. So maybe... The, the very uh, means that the high priest was to use of the casting of lots. And we may think, well, why did Samuel do this? He already knew who the king was. Um, why go through this, this big procession of having the tribes come together and then casting lots to see which tribe would be chosen and then casting lots to see which family would be chosen from that tribe and then casting lots to see which uh, son of the father would be chosen. Samuel already knew as did Saul. But no doubt, there, this is a very vulnerable time for the people of Israel. If Samuel simply came and declared that this was a decision, uh, there may have been many who would have rejected that, would have seen that as just Samuel's own preference, not actually something the Lord himself was involved in. So it seems to be a way that, that God uh, is affirming to the people his choice by way of the casting of lots, a common way in which they made decisions. And so, sure enough, as we would suspect, the Lord, uh, even as Proverbs tells us, the, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And, and, and though this is not something we use in the, the New Testament times, um, really after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, we don't see lots used uh, for the decision-making of God's people. But in this time, it was very common. And sure enough, the lot falls to Saul. And you could just imagine Saul standing there and, and he's aware of what's happening. He's like, okay, this will be interesting to see 
what, what unfolds. And he's like, okay, sure enough, tribe of Benjamin. Well, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And, and, and it goes on to then his, his, his family line. And, and then, then Kish is also selected. And at that point, it seems that Saul is, is getting wet feet. He's uh, maybe considering all that this would entail of leading these people and fighting the Philistines and, and governing. And, and he just maybe is overwhelmed with the task before him. He decides to go hiding in the luggage. He goes and hides behind all the, the suitcases and the coolers. And he's just uh, trying to, to stay out of sight, hoping maybe that somebody else will be selected in his absence. And this, this crazy scene where they, they can't find him. He's been chosen. Uh, and God tells them, probably by way of Samuel, he's hiding in the luggage. And so they go over and they bring him out. And as he kind of comes crawling out from behind the suitcases and coolers, and he stands up and they realize, oh, this guy is impressive. He's a head taller than all of us. He's good looking. He's young. Um, And then they cry out, long live the king. And so we have the public coronation of Saul. And what what a strange beginning for the first king of Israel. Um, This is not maybe as glamorous as they hoped. And on top of all of that, we're then told that on the one hand, God touches the hearts of some men of valor who will go with Saul and be his sort of bodyguard. But there are also in 27 worthless fellows who say, how can this man save us? And they despise him and bring him no present though Saul does not retaliate. So it's this mixed scene. On the one hand, we see rejoicing and anticipation. On the other hand, there is rebuke because of their rejection. We see support and affirmation from the people, but there are also people who are are unhappy with this decision. No doubt others thought, well, the tribe of Benjamin, it's, it's the least, it's the smallest tribe. Why not, why not another tribe? Uh, maybe they had already, in their minds, uh, chosen who would be the proper king to stand before them. And yet in all of this, we see God mercifully pointing his people forward, purposefully setting the stage for us to understand not only this role of the king as the shepherd, as the protector of the people, but even these very uh, components that were put in place privately and publicly also become important as we are to understand not only David and the other kings of Israel, but it points us forward in many ways to Christ himself as we think about some of the parallels that were in place as Christ came onto the scene. We could think about the last prophet of the, the old order um, who was, does anyone know who was the, the last prophet of, we could say, the Old Testament. We don't think of him that way always. Yeah, Ezra. <laughs> okay, that's the last um, that's in the, the Old Testament. But as far as the last prophet before Christ would come, it's kind of a trick question, but you're right as far as the last book of the Bible. Who was referred to as a prophet prior to Christ? He baptized with water. John. Yeah, he is actually called a prophet of God 
And, and so in a similar way, we see as Christ begins to uh, enter onto the scene to begin his public ministry, in the same way, we have a prophet of God, John, sent forward. And this prophet is the, going to prepare the way for the king. He is going to announce his arrival. He's going to identify him to Israel. And we find that he did not, um, he did not anoint with oil, but he came baptizing with water. And it's in the baptism of Christ that John identifies Jesus as the king, as the promised one of the line of David, not from Benjamin's line. Because even well, as, as Jacob blessed his sons, Benjamin was told that he would be like a, a, a wolf. He would, he would be this sort of warrior always on the move, but from the line of Judah would be the, the scepter that would continue on. And so Jesus in his coming also affirmed by the prophet John, baptized in water, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and empowered by God to fulfill all righteousness as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we read in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And as Jesus comes into his hometown, he quotes Isaiah 61 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the the poor. And this entire uh, coronation and the, the private confirmation of Saul helps us even understand as Jesus comes, he is proclaimed by the prophet. He is anointed in, in not with oil, but the power of the Holy Spirit. And the spirit where it temporarily resides on Saul, equipping him for his task, we're told the spirit is given to Christ without measure, abiding richly upon Christ. And he continues then in the role of king um, of his people. And so this is, a, in, in many ways, many wonderful foreshadowings for us as we consider Christ, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And does it not also remind us of the time when Christ is put before the people of Israel? Here they are celebrating this decision. They're celebrating this impressive person. He's tall. He seems to fit the bill uh, of king. And they're excited. They're, they're crying out. Long live the king. But in John 19, we record Pilate putting Jesus before the people of Israel. And he says to the Jews, after Jesus has been flogged and there's the the robe of purple mocking him and the crown of thorns upon his head. And and, and in, in an almost mocking way, Pilate puts Jesus before the Jews and he says to them, behold your king. But they do not even cry out, long live the king, when when God himself in flesh is standing before him. They cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. They tell Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate delivers Christ over to be crucified. We see this stark contrast of the foolishness of God's people hardening themselves against him. Yet through that rebellion, through that rejection, God brings about salvation not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. 
And it's in this hope that we are brought. We uh, also are brought under the rule and reign of Christ. We are called to submit ourselves to him, to serve him, to honor him. He is the true king of Israel and all who fear him. And just as we see in this time of the king being appointed, those who rise up against Saul and despise him, whenever God is working and moving among his people, whenever the kingdom is advancing, we can mark it that there will be opposition. There will be those who refuse to submit to the ways and purposes of God. And Peter actually told us in 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. We're to expect opposition. Expect there to be those who despise us and reject us. John even said in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And we find that even in these moments of Israel's history, there is this constant tension of animosity towards what God is doing. And yet we are called to also press on in obedience and faithfulness. And we rejoice that Jesus came not looking for lost donkeys, but Jesus came humbly riding upon the colt of the donkey, riding towards Jerusalem that he would offer up his life for his people and be raised in victory upon the last day. Let us not raise a complaint against the ways of God and against his anointed. Let us rejoice. Let us kiss the Son. Let us praise him who has been given the Spirit without measure. Because of Christ's obedience, the Father was pleased to exalt him to the right hand of power, to entrust to the Son all authority in heaven and earth. And so we are called now to be his ambassadors of this true King and to make disciples of the nations, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach all that Christ has commanded. And this is our calling under our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's close there this morning with prayer, and then we will have a final song. Bow with me, please. Father, we come before you and thank you for your word, and we do just, uh, we are amazed at, Lord, how you have so carefully set the stage for the coming of Christ, even in the midst of your people's rejection of you and the attempting to, to plow ahead with their own plans. Lord, we see your sovereignty providentially working, um, Lord, even through, even through the, the sins of your people, bringing about your own plan and purpose of salvation and deliverance. And we see this most clearly, of course, in Christ himself. Lord, though he was handed over unjustly and, Lord, con- condemned without proper trial, though he was without sin, he willingly laid down his life that we might be forgiven and in him have uh, newness of life and an eternal hope. And so we pray you help us to keep our eyes upon Christ, to be faithful citizens of his kingdom, and to move forward in the strength of your spirit, which you give us, Lord, by faith in Christ. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name.
Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.